0: I see his mind. I see his every intent. Yes, I see him turning the
1: lightsaber to strike true. And now, foolish child, he ignites it and kills his true enemy. Welcome to Neon, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the history lurking behind it. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time we're looking at The Last Jedi, the Star Wars movie that came out in late 2017. Which means, of course, we're going to be talking about Napoleon and Hitler and the Roman Empire and Warhammer, and of course, finally, conspiracy theories about Jar Jar Binks. you got here, Brenda. This guy has been creeping
0: around since at least 1700. Not possible. We have been here for three and a half hours. How many different ways do you want me to tell the same story?
1: notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet?
0: No, it's a pretty good place.
1: I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot?
0: As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic.
1: Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. Let's start with the movie itself, The Last Jedi, which is now technically the eighth movie in the overall Skywalker story. Although, of course, there's now been Rogue One and there's also sort of been a Star Wars Clone Wars movie. It gets a bit complicated, to be honest. But what can be undeniable about this particular film is it's probably the most divisive Star Wars movie around. Now, that's not the same thing to say it's the worst Star Wars movie, but when you're looking at something like Star Wars Episode One, pretty much everybody agrees that is a pretty flawed film. Although, ironically, Star Wars Episode One probably has the best lightsaber fight. That's the one with a young Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn versus Darth Maul with his sort of quarter-staff type lightsaber. And that is genuinely awesome. I remember when The Phantom Menace came out back in 1999, came out a few weeks earlier in America and had a friend out in America. And I said, what's it like? What's it like? Everybody wanted to know what that film was like. We'd been waiting for well over a decade. It didn't look like we'd ever get any Star Wars movies again. Suddenly there's a new Star Wars movie out. Well, I say suddenly the hype machine had been pushing for quite some time. And he said something I think that is actually pretty valid about that movie. He said, look, The highs are as high as any of the other movies. Things like, for example, the pod race and the fight with uh, Darth Maul. You've got to admit, those stand the test of time against all the other sections of all the other moments of all the other Star Wars movies. But he said there aren't enough of them. There are quite a few lulls. But when it's good, it's really good. And I think that's a pretty good summary of it. However, since Disney has bought the Star Wars brand, for $4.2 billion. They have needed to make some money out of it. And I remember there was a huge amount of concern. It's like, oh, Disney's got it, they're going to ruin it. Really? Because when I spend $4.2 billion on something, I want to destroy it. No, they wanted to continue the story. Obviously, make money out of it. But they obviously wanted to do right by it. If they did something that turned everybody off, well, then... You've just wasted $4.2 billion. So when The Force Awakens came out a couple of years ago, everybody agreed that it was a lot of fun. It was far more fun than the prequels. But what me and a few other people thought when it came out is, this is very similar to... Star Wars A New Hope from 1977. It feels almost like a soft reboot. Do we really need another Death Star? They even say it's not a Death Star in it, but that tells you it's a Death Star. But Seeing Han and Chewie together and the sort of slight bickering that's going on there and the wonderful line when John Boyega, who's the stormtrooper, says, oh, why don't you just use the force or something like that? And when not you just force it up? And Han Solo goes, that's not how the force works. And that's just a wonderful cranky line of dialogue there from Harrison Ford. Anyway, the point is, while perhaps people wanted a little bit more. People did enjoy undeniably the force awakens and let's face it it grossed more than two billion dollars at the box office and that's not including all the merchandising and stuff like that so pretty much disney managed to make their money back with the first movie and it is also worth pointing out that that film not adjusted for inflation just as in terms of box office is the second biggest grossing movie of all time after avatar so mission accomplished then rogue one came out now this was the first of star wars stories And that particular movie was telling the story of how the Rebels got the plans for the Death Star. So if you like, it's just before Star Wars A New Hope in 1977. And I actually really like that one. I think it's one of the best Star Wars movies. Again, it's not perfect, but I think it's really good. And I, I like the fact that the director, Gareth Edwards, said... Do you know what? We haven't really seen much war in Star Wars. There's an awful lot of action and excitement, but there are very few pitched battles. So that's clearly what he was going for in the last bit of it. And it's a glorious looking movie. And then we came to The Last Jedi, where again, the hype train was huge. You know, people were a little bit disappointed in Force Awakens when Luke turns up for all of one minute at the end of the movie. Maybe not even that. Um, I might be overdoing his cameo. But this was all going to be about Luke, the person that we all learnt about the Star Wars world with. He was a wide-eyed teenager back in 1977, and he learns about the rebellion and the truth about his family and so on and so forth. So everybody was more than pumped about Mark Hamill coming back to play Luke Skywalker once more, and indeed after we'd seen what Harrison Ford, a notoriously grumpy actor, had done with Han Solo and obviously had had fun with it. It all looked really really good, but they decided to push against preconceived ideas. In essence you could argue they'd learnt from The Force Awakens, if you just give people what they want people realise that's not actually what they wanted. So they took some real risks. And it seems that there are two camps in this. Either this was a really brave move and it really worked and it may even be the best Star Wars movie of all time. Or you're from the group of, you have just destroyed my childhood and this has broken the Star Wars franchise and you have destroyed a much beloved character, of Luke Skywalker, in a ridiculously pointless way. Now, I think the problem with the internet is everything tends to be turned into black and white. I sit in the middle. I liked some of the brave choices. I think that the criticism that Luke seems to have turned into a grumpy old man who might even be willing to kill some of his pupils is a long way away from the wide-eyed youth who was all about hope that we saw in the late 70s and early 80s. But you know what? 30 years have passed. You look at your parents or your grandparents they're not the same as when they were 20 years old okay you do i recognize this myself you get a bit grumpier and more cynical and if you'd made some of the mistakes that luke skywalker had made i think it makes complete sense if you're still sitting there being a golly gosh darn it jedi slash moisture farmer i think we would have all been bitterly disappointed that that character had shown very little development apart from developing force powers Over the last 30, 40 years, that isn't a very satisfying character arc. What I have a problem with are two areas, and one of them is going to be something I'm going to be concentrating on for most of this podcast. I've already gone off piece, but I think you recognize that with Neon. But I will be getting back to all those points that I mentioned earlier. I think the stuff on Canto Byte where Finn and Rose are trying to get that hacker, well, they don't get the hacker they were looking for. This is all to open a door, and when they eventually get to the door with their hacker, they don't open the door. So what was the point of all of that? And indeed, halfway through the big chase on the back of the giant dog horse things, I was sitting there going, I just don't care about any of this stuff. And it was a real dead end, and after all the interesting stuff with Finn in the first movie, of the new movies, I was disappointed that he really wasn't given much to do in the second one. And Rose, great, great to have another female cast member, and it was great to see that she wasn't some kind of size 8 little beautiful white girl. You know, she she looked like a real woman, uh, obviously of Asian ancestry, and that was great to see. But she wasn't given an awful lot to do. She wasn't a particularly fleshed out character. So that whole bit just felt like a big cul-de-sac, a big dead end in, in a rather long Star Wars movie. But the other thing is to do with Chekhov, Anton Chekhov. He famously said, in terms of structure of a story, if you show a gun in Act One, it must fire in Act 3. In other words, if you're setting up something, you need it to have some kind of exciting resolution later on. And Snoke was set up as a big bad, as somebody who was really interesting and huge. I know the internet went crazy with theories, the Darth Pelagius stuff and blah, blah, blah. But to have him, I'm sorry, spoiler now for Last Jedi, okay? But to have him die with no explanation as to who he was, with no real comeback on it, Again, a little bit like the whole Canto bite stuff. What was the point of him? He didn't really serve much of a purpose. However, I think the people who complained about how he died, I think it, he died in a really clever way. He was showing his arrogance and overconfidence in the situation. And I thought that Kylo Ren played it well. And it led to a really interesting scene between Kylo Ren and Ray. However, the bit I want to concentrate on is the moments immediately after his death, Snoke's death, that is. First of all, that was a gorgeously created throne room. I love the red backdrop. It just, the whole thing looks so theatrical, and I mean that in a good way. And then, and this is the bit we're coming to, they have no name in the movie. It's interesting that some things are so heavily marketed that we don't realise we never hear the name in the movie. So yes, those red guards around Snoke, because I've seen the action figures, they are Praetorian guards. And that's the thing I'm going to be concentrating on in this particular podcast. This idea of an imperial bodyguard. And those Praetorian guard then have one of the most exciting scenes in all of Star Wars, as they have this huge sort of lightsabery type fight with Kylo and Rey, and it is spectacular. The first time we'd kind of seen martial arts in a Star Wars movie had actually just been in the previous one, in Rogue One, where you see the blind, not Jedi, definitely not Jedi, they keep saying he's not a Jedi, but sort of Fourth Temple-type guy? Chirrut is his name. Chirut's his name. And uh, anyway, the point is, you start seeing him do cool martial arts against Stormtroopers. And the moment he does it, you think, martial arts absolutely fits into Star Wars. And you can imagine that a sort of Force-empowered individual could do Bruce Lee-type stuff. So that makes complete sense. And clearly, they've got some expert martial arts people In the Praetorian Guard armour to then have this amazing fight with two of our heroes slash anti-heroes. So that's what's going on there. But what I wanted to point out about that is there is a long list of sci-fi or made-up stories, fantasy, which hark back to real Imperial Guards, real bodyguards of emperors and leaders and rulers and they quite often get it wrong so I said I'd talk about Last Jedi the next thing I'm going to jump into is another sci-fi story and that is Warhammer 40,000 now if you haven't heard of Warhammer give me a minute and let me fill you in okay back in the 1980s there's this company called Games Workshop it's a British company and they do fantasy modeling and role play games and they came up with two areas that they have now developed over the last 30 odd years and using the modern terms for them you have age of sigma which is a fantasy game in the oldie world think lord of the rings and you're on the right track then there's warhammer Forty Thousand, which as you can guess by the number it's set in the future a grim future of war and i could say a bit like star wars but that really isn't doing the style and tone justice at all so Now to just delve into Warhammer 40,000 for a moment. So in the game, what is Warhammer and Games Workshop? So the idea is you buy plastic kits and you create models out of them and you so you build the models you then paint the models and then you play games quite often tabletop battles with the models there are a number of variations of this stuff in the time of Forty Thousand, you have this god emperor of mankind but he has been much diminished he's almost like a ghost he's like a barely living skeleton inside the golden throne as it's called this massive machine that's just barely keeping him alive and the God Emperor, who is human, is still interacting with the Empire, but not through making any great decrees, but through drifting these psychic thoughts into various peoples. How did he end up on that throne? Well, in the thirty thousand, so ten thousand years earlier, he had been sending out his Space Marines. Now, for the people who know nothing about this. Think stormtroopers, only what you have to understand is these are genetically engineered and modified human beings. They're about seven foot tall. They have so many extra organs and enhancements to their bodies. Could you even call them human anymore? Like, for example, their rib cages have fused together to create a a bone plate over their major organs. So that even if you shoot them, chances are that it's not going to hurt them. And you put this huge brute who is... Ultimately, almost immortal as well, Who can, who's learned how to fight over centuries, who's been through horrific trials just to become a space marine, as they're called. And then you put that guy and you stick him in this power armor, which makes him even bigger and tougher and really stormtroopers just pale into comparison next to something like that but if you can imagine something almost like ripley at the end of aliens if you can imagine somebody in that thing only it's fully encased in armor and also the person inside it is seven foot tall and incredibly strong anyway and even the basic gun is what we would now consider something like a grenade launcher that is an awesome thing and and the emperor had thousands of those so millions of those and he went out and spread across the galaxy and spread humanity to create a great imperium but leading these space marines were even bigger badder guys called Primarchs, and the the basically the adopted son of the emperor was a guy called horus and he got corrupted by evil chaos in the terms of warhammer and so some of the chapters some of the armies of space marines fell to this corruption fell to this chaos and started to attacking the imperium and they managed to get all the way back to earth and there was a huge fight on planet earth on the basically the palace planet of the emperor and the emperor fought basically to the death with horus and i always love the line where they're fighting with each other in their power armor and they're throwing all their psychic powers at each other and there's a line which says basically a power enough to destroy planets flew between them. That gives you an idea how powerful they are. They would wipe out anything in the Star Wars universe by comparison. Darth Vader wouldn't last two minutes against something like Horus. But the point is, around him at that time, the Emperor had his personal bodyguard, the Adeptus Custodus. There's an awful lot of mock cod Latin in Warhammer. And so... These were the imperial guards, the Praetorian guards in their great golden armor who were there to keep the emperor safe from harm. And they failed because although the emperor killed Horus, Horus gravely wounded the emperor, which stopped him being a walking, talking human being with godlike powers. And instead, he was encased in this golden throne. Sorry, went on for a little bit more than a minute, but here's the thing. So there's this whole lore around the Adeptus Custodes that because they made this one mistake, they failed once 10,000 years ago, that uh, they've kind of got a grudge and they are the best of the best. And they're hugely elite troops. And if you ever play the game with them, they are incredibly overpowered, which is why you're not allowed many of them. And Although it begs the question, what are they doing out in the battlefield? Sure, they, they should be guarding the Golden Throne. You remember the last time. But they really have never got over that failure. And I think that's an interesting idea. Because when you talk about the Adeptus Custodos and their, and their mindset, and you talk about the Praetorian Guard in The Last Jedi, the way they act is once they're, the person they were meant to be protecting has died, well, it's almost like... We need to keep fighting. We need to honour this person. And I'm sorry about that, but that's actually not what happened in real life, with one very bizarre exception. So allow me to tell you a little bit about the real Praetorian Guard, you know, the ones from ancient Rome. The Praetorian Guard actually took its name from the campaign tents that the generals used way back in the Roman Republic era. And they ultimately have their roots as an elite guard. And what you have to remember is that the more warlike emperors, you know, some emperors just sat around in pleasure palaces, many emperors were actually generals who came to power. And for those more warlike emperors, it would have been those men who they'd fought side by side and shown real loyalty to that general, that when they became an emperor, well, naturally, you're going to be my guard. Thank you. So... What you need to understand is, after all the violence that had led to the rise of Augustus, Augustus, Caesar Augustus was the very first emperor. You know, Julius Caesar technically wasn't an emperor, and Caesar Augustus recognised that he had a need for some bodyguards, and the first guard numbered just 500, however, fairly Quickly, uh, moving on, you end up with a thousand Praetorian guards, and even later on from that, they get to quite a large size. They're basically the size of a legion, although at this size, this time, 500, 1,000, that's a sizable force. It's certainly enough to protect an emperor, but it is absolutely not enough to be really an army in and of its own right. Tiberius the second emperor moved the guards base to just outside Rome which broke the rule of soldiers being beyond the Rubicon now just to pause on that if you if you've heard the phrase crossing the Rubicon that's down to Julius Caesar there it's a very small minor river in Italy but it's on the road to Rome and the idea was the rules were during the Roman Republic that as a any General coming back to Rome would have to disband his legions when he got to the Rubicon. That's the closest you could turn up with your army. So if you ever cross the Rubicon with an army, you're showing that you're an enemy of the Republic. And indeed, when Julius Caesar got to the Rubicon with his army, and the reason why he was coming back is he knew that he, in essence, he was being set up to fall back in Rome. So he either came back with an army to keep him safe or he walked into Rome and probably get killed. That was to happen later on, but at least he managed to get his way first. But anyway, so it was interesting that even the likes of Julius Caesar, one of the most famous people in history, he paused at the Rubicon and he sort of dithered for a couple of days before he crossed with his troops at the Rubicon. But now having troops basically closer to Rome made complete sense if you're going to be an imperial guard of the emperor. Makes sense, yes, we can all agree that. And also it was a deterrent for anybody to try and cause any uprisings because it wasn't enough to fight another army, but it was certainly enough to perhaps put down an uprising in Rome. So the thing is, it wasn't necessarily external threats that the emperors had to worry about. Take, for example, Caligula, the third emperor. The Praetorian Guard failed to keep the emperor out of harm's way because it was the Praetorian Guard that murdered him. So that's very much the opposite of the image you see in things like Last Jedi or in something like Warhammer. You see, the idea is that these are almost beyond loyal men, that they'll they'll sort of fight no matter what. In a way, going back to the very first Neon podcast, it's a little bit like Black Panther, where you have the elite bodyguard there backing the throne and not the man. But when you look back in history, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Then we get the fourth emperor, Claudius, who was announced by the Praetorian Guard, which means that it was assuming a more political role and was now a far from neutral faction. The very next emperor was Nero. Uh, While he wasn't actually killed by the guard, it did desert him in his hour of need and Nero ended up committing suicide. So, to be fair to the bodyguard as a whole though, the emperors early on that they betrayed were widely considered to be terrible rulers, and their actions were usually seen as the Praetorian Guard doing the right thing for Rome rather than for the emperors. But, the point of a bodyguard is to protect the ruler no matter what, and it was for others to decide who they might be replaced by and by whom so the guard by now even just a few generations in had gone off message and during some of the madder grabs for power later on maybe a century or so later the praetorian guard was pivotal in deciding who would win in some instances the guards would take bribes from all the contenders and then siding ultimately with the one who actually paid them the most again this is not the way that guards are generally portrayed in fiction And well over a dozen emperors were either killed or brought to power through force by, surprise, surprise, the Praetorian Guard. So it should become as no surprise that basically by the end of the 3rd century AD, their actions have brought them pretty much into disrepute. And it was the Emperor Constantine, Constantine the Great, in the early 300s, who finally had them disbanded and replaced with the Imperial Germanic bodyguard a group of outsiders that owed their allegiance to the emperor and emperor alone to try and break this idea of being political players so there's the Roman example but what's interesting is some people in history did manage to get loyal guards so you've got the old guard and the imperial guard of Napoleon. Indeed, you have the old, the medium, and new guard. And these were veteran soldiers. These were very much based like the Praetorian guard in Rome. And what was interesting is they only once in battle, when he sent in the guard, everybody worried about that because some of these men had been fighting with Napoleon since the 1790s. They'd been The equivalent of all around the world. They might have fought in somewhere like Egypt. They might have fought in somewhere like Italy and Russia. And here they are coming onto the battlefield now. So they were very much a scary sight to be seen by any army. Prussians, the the British, whoever. The guard were a worrisome thing. And the only time they retreated was actually at the Battle of Waterloo. When the guard accidentally walked into an area where there were British troops hiding in corn, and basically a point-blank range with consistent volley fire. The guard just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they were under such withering fire... Well, they had to make a judgment call, and they started retreating. Of course, when the French army saw the guard retreating for the very first time, that led to chaos, and loads of people started fleeing the battlefield. That was one of the most pivotal moments in the Battle of Waterloo. It wasn't the only one. I don't know, maybe at some point I'll do the Battle of Waterloo and something else. But there you go. There's an example of a loyal um, guard another example of a loyal guard is unfortunately for somebody that they shouldn't necessarily have been loyal to and that's adolf hitler and i now have to attempt to pronounce a rather tough german phrase which is ss begleitkommando des führer now uh, i hope i nailed one of those words but then again i'm not going to sweat about correctly pronouncing a part of the ss but what's interesting about this bodyguard is it wasn't particularly big at the very beginning there were eight of them and by the end we're talking dozens but this is more in the style of the very early Praetorian Guard rather than the later Praetorian Guard where you have sort of thousands of these people running around and what's interesting is that they were the only people who did not have to hand in their weapons around Hitler they were that trusted and indeed to be fair to their job role, they did remain loyal and stayed with him both in the Wolf's Lair uh, out in the East and then in Berlin, in the bunker, right up until April, 1945. And so they were loyal until Hitler killed himself. So I guess you could argue that isn't particularly great either. So you've had Napoleon, you've had Hitler, you've had the Romans. I've talked a bit about the movies. But let's finish off on that other thing I said I would do, which is the wonderful world of Jar Jar Binks' conspiracies. As people have attempted to try and go back to the prequels, they've tried to make them more interesting. And I like this. I'm not saying I agree with this, but I like this. In the sense that if you re-watch the very first prequel, The Phantom Menace, Episode 1, you'll notice that Jar Jar Binks, who is easily the most irritating character in all of Star Wars lore... Although he is uh, deeply irritating, he's in the background of a lot of quite pivotal scenes where people make bad judgments. And he seems to be chewing. And there is this theory that he's not chewing. He's actually talking. You know, like in the original Star Wars, when you get Alec Guinness, Obi-Wan Kenobi going, these aren't the droids you're looking for. And the Stormtrooper goes, these aren't the droids we're looking for. So the theory is that he's a Sith playing a fool who's behind the scenes manipulating everything. And one thing you cannot deny is you do see Jar Jar Binks in the Senate give unconditional power to Palpatine, making him the Emperor. Jar Jar Binks does actually kick off the Empire. Bizarrely. But you put all that together and the theory is Jar Jar Binks is actually a Sith Lord wow make of that what you will it's not canon although george lucas seems to like the idea and i think he's also hoping it might help save the character because although he hasn't outright agreed with the theory he has said he didn't have the time there's such bad reaction to some characters he didn't have the time to develop them the way he wanted to make of that what you will but yes this is neon's thoughts on the last jedi and more importantly imperial guards If you want to get involved in the conversation, it is Neon Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. It's neonpodcast.com. That's the official website. If you want to talk to me, Gem Daducci, I'm History Gems with a G again on Facebook and also on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Keep spreading the word. Please keep liking. Give us a five-star review. It helps just get the, the message out. Thank you very much.